together to pray, the intention with this short talk is to fuel our prayers, to give us things that the Bible teaches us we could and should joyfully pray for. So that's what we're going to try and do. And um, not that many of you, I think, have had the privilege of standing here or standing up there on a Sunday morning, but actually, this church looks pretty impressive. On a Sunday morning, uh, when it's full, there are, what, 750 people here? Every seat filled, plenty of eager people, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Sure, there are a few people here not quite so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, but nonetheless, you know, this church can sometimes look pretty impressive. But the truth is that most churches do not look uh, a whole lot like this. I don't know how many of you have grown up or, or passed through other churches in your lives, but I'm sure some of you have had quite a different church experience in your past. Um, before I was here, I was a part of a very small church plant in the center of Oxford. Some Sundays, I was praying, to play. it was just depressing to stand at the front. Some Sundays, we would arrange the chairs carefully so that the small number of people who showed up wouldn't look quite so small. Some Sundays, there'd be about as many people involved in making the service happen as would show up all together. The church can look pretty hopeless sometimes. In many places, the church is, in truth, just a, a shrinking gathering, mostly made up of people who are moderately committed to the less taxing demands of a Jesus who they're pretty sure isn't just make-believe. Even this fine building, even a fine crowd here, doesn't feel like that much when you think about the, the size and the scale of the city that sits just outside our doors. But you know what? We, the church, we are, in fact, God's plan for bringing his good news to this world. We're his plan A, if you like, and there is absolutely no plan B. There's not a cavalry coming who are going to pick things up at the last moment, turn things around and carry the day. The Americans are not coming, at least not enough of them. Anyway, uh, for the Asimov fans amongst you, there is no second foundation waiting in the wings to pick things up when all seems lost. No, when we pray in our Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, the the kingdom coming is this, is us, the place where God's will is beginning to be done on earth as it's done in heaven, is the church. This really is the hope of the world. This really is the expression of God's mission in his world. This really is his plan for how every nation on earth is going to hear the good news about Jesus and come to worship his glory and grace and that, I think, can be pretty terrifying, really. This is all there is. This is it. Is this really a good plan, God? We're going to read tonight a little bit of how Paul, one of Jesus' first followers, prays, particularly in regard to the church. And there's encouragement here for us if uh, you're anything like me, and sometimes the church can get you down if you ever have doubts about it. Well, Paul prays that we would have insight into what to expect since we are the people that God has called into his mission here on earth. So we're going to read together from the book of Ephesians 
And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, it'd be helpful to have one. And uh, there's some stewards at the back who will bring one to you. Just wave your hand. Please don't feel embarrassed. Uh, wave your hand, and they'll come and bring you a Bible. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. It's nice and easy to find. If you've got one of our lovely Burgundy Bibles, then we're on page 1173. 1173, Ephesians chapter 1. Your patience will be rewarded. Keep those hands up. You can share. You'll be all right. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 15. Thanksgiving and prayer. That's very fitting for a church at prayer, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's how Paul prays. Now, that passage is pretty dense. You probably want to take that a whole lot slower than we're going to tonight, but we're not going to. A little bit of unpacking. Let me fly you back through the passage at a higher level, okay? He says, having heard about their faith and love, that's verse 15, he's praying for the church in verse 16. He's asking God to give them insight so they know him better in verse 17. Knowing God better is what's at the heart of Paul's prayer here. That's what he's praying for his people, that they would know God better. But then he goes on and spells out what that means for us as a, as a people, not just as individuals. And that starts in the middle of verse 18. Find verse 18 with me. Take a look. What's the result of knowing God better? The eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that. This is the result. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And then he gives us two things the hope stands on. First, right at the back of verse 18, he says this stands on the, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. That's a bit of a mouthful. We'll unpack that in a minute. The second one in verse 19, he says, it stands on his incomparably great power for those who believe. And then the remainder of the passage tries to spell out and show us just how great that power is. Where we've seen it displayed in verse 20, in the resurrection of Jesus, how overwhelmingly great it is in verse 21 over every single thing, and then reinforcing that this power is brought to bear for the benefit of the church in Christ, verses 22 and 23. 
50,000 feet of what's going on. Okay, but let me boil it down. Paul is praying that we'd know God better, and that means that we'd embrace the hope that there is in God's calling. And that hope stands on how much God treasures the church, and it stands on how great His power is. But to get this passage right, we've got to get the words right. And probably the key one here is hope. Paul's praying that we'd embrace this hope that results from the call of God, this hope that comes out of it. When we hear the word hope today, we think of almost a wish, right? I hope it doesn't rain. Actually, October's been amazing for that, hasn't it? Um, But generally speaking, I hope it doesn't rain is just a wish. It's just a desire, right? When Paul uses the word hope, doesn't carry that sense at all. When Paul, Paul's not just wishing that we might believe it's possible, although unlikely. It's not what he's suggesting to us. He's praying that we would embrace its certainty. When Paul talks about hope, he's talking about future certainty, not a possibility, a confident expectation. He wants us to live confident expectation of what is coming. The next two clauses spell out why we should be confident, okay? First, we should be confident because of the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. That's verse 18. That's a bit of a mouthful. What does it mean? Let's start by what it doesn't mean, okay? The riches of his glorious inheritance. Well, this isn't Paul praying that we'd know how rich, how glorious we're going to be as his holy people. Paul isn't praying that we would grasp that if we just have enough faith, we're going to be rolling in Wonga. To be fair, that might be quite appealing. It'd be a nice future to have if that was what was promised. But it's not. You don't have to read very many stories of Jesus' followers to figure out that it doesn't work out that way for them in the past or for them even today. Paul's not holding out to the Ephesians a kind of lottery-style hope. You should hope that you're going to Win big on God. That's not what he's saying here. Here's how we need to read this. This is speaking not about what's going to happen to us. It's about how God sees us. His church, his holy people. Paul is praying that we would grasp just how extremely valuable the church is to God. How treasured it is. How precious it is to him. Let me ask this for a minute. What is the most precious thing in your life? Do you have like a, a, a special possession? Do you have something that sits on the mantelpiece that may not be touched, only polished? Maybe it's not a possession. Maybe, maybe the most precious thing in your life, let's put aside the Sunday school answers for a minute, maybe the most precious thing in your life is, uh, is more of a memory or an experience or a relationship, the thing you treasure the most. Take a moment and try and get something in mind that is precious to you. Now get this, God treasures the church so much more. So much more than how we treasure the most precious thing to us. The church is not something which if God lost it, it'd be like a bit of a downer, but he could get himself another one. That's that's not how God thinks about the church. It's not like having, you know, your wallet. I like my wallet. It's handy to have my credit cards. Lost it, awkward, inconvenient. That's, That's not how God thinks about the church. The church to him is priceless irreplaceable. It's not a a, a commodity. 
we are of extreme value to God. He calls us his glorious inheritance. And that doesn't mean it's not what he gets when somebody dies. That's not what he means by inheritance. He's using the, the way the Israelites would have thought about inheritance. It's their patch, their bit, uh, the, the, the part of the promised land that was specifically theirs. What this means is we are God's own special portion. We're the bit that's his. Priceless, precious to him. Not looking so glorious today, perhaps. Not so much a holy people today, perhaps, apart from Christ's covering of our sins. But this is what we are to him. We are precious, we're treasured, we're valued. And you know how we can see how precious we are to him? By looking at the price he was willing to pay. Like Martin was speaking to us this morning, if you were here. This is how precious we are to God that he's willing to give his son, his only son, his beloved son. So let's step back. Why should we have hope as a church? Why should we have hope, confident expectation? Because we as God's people are truly treasured by God. Hard to put too much weight on how much he values us. I find it hard to get my head around that God actually thinks that we are valuable but he does he bought us with his own son's blood that should shape our expectations in our relationship with him he doesn't just put up with us he's not just stuck with us unable to take us back and get a refund and choose another people one foundation but that's not he gives us another foundation look at verse 19 the other foundation for solid hope is this his incomparably great power for us who believe. His incomparably great power. And in case we couldn't quite get a handle on that, is it a bit abstract? How powerful is God? He tells us where we can see it. We can see it displayed in raising Christ from the dead in the past. We can see it displayed in the present in exalting Christ to the highest place over every power, earthly and heavenly. And we can see it in forever in the future. All things are under Christ's feet. I want to show you one more thing about this second foundation. It takes this power demonstrated in Christ's resurrection. Connects it back to us, his church. Just one little word, but it's significant. Look closely at verse 19. It's his incomparably great power. It says it's power for us who believe. His power for us who believe. Um, the ESV, it's another translation of the same Greek manuscripts. The ESV translates this, his power towards those who believe. What both these translations are trying to capture is the sense in the original language that this great power is for the benefit of us who believe. Power for our good. Power in support of us as his church. Kind of like imagining the U.S. behind you as you go in on an attack. Their air power backing you up. We can see the same foreness of God's power in verse 22. God placed all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. 
the reason God put everything under God's feet, the reason God appointed him head over all things is for the benefit of the church, for the good of the church that he loved, that he loves. Okay, so Paul's prayer is that the church would grasp hold of the hope which comes from being called by God, our hope. And he shows us we should build this hope on knowledge of God, knowing how much God treasures his people, knowing how great God's power is that's deployed for our benefit. This means, as a church, we should hope. We should be filled with hope. We have good reason to hope. This means we have good reason to pray. So tonight, as we come to pray, we're going to pray with Paul that we would know this hope. We're going to pray with Paul that we would grow in this knowledge of who God is. We're going to pray with Paul that we would hold on to these reasons, these pillars of support for why we should hope. Because the church, we are treasured by God. And his power is deployed for us in Jesus'